to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. This special episode, we have Amelia Lance, also known as my mother, to tell us about her Galveston, Texas origins, meeting my dad, and her adventures in being an expat wife. Moving is hard, but moving a family of six from Bolivia to England to Houston to Kuwait to Cairo is extremely hard, and it took a Herculean effort on her part to deal with the boxes and the time zones and the culture shock, all the while providing us with a stable home. So here is Amelia Lance. Well, Amelia, great to have you on. Great to uh, finally get to see you, uh, not in person, but uh, I but I get to see you. I've heard your right. voice a couple of times. It's great to uh, have you on tonight. I, I think Daniel's excited. I know I'm excited to, to talk to you. And uh, let's get going. Likewise. Thank you. Yeah, cool. thanks for coming. So, so Amelia, you're a, a Texan. I think you're, you would consider yourself a proud Texan. What part of Texas did you grow up in? Well, I'm a BOI which means I was born on the island, and that would be Galveston Island. I was going to guess that. Okay. <laughs> but there's also some prod, San Padre Island. Galveston and, is really a uh, bedroom community for Houston, or do I have that wrong? Uh, no, no island community is a bedroom community for any place <laughs> else. It's distinct. Um, Galveston is shipping, tourism, uh, University of Texas Medical Branch, uh, Texas A&M Sea uh, Coast uh, Operations, um, their, their School of uh, Biological, not Biological Sciences, but what they would do out on the Gulf Coast, and that includes uh, all the, the turtle research, um, Coast Guard, um, yeah, there's uh, Texas A&M, Galveston is there. Mm-hmm. I guess you already mentioned that. Mm-hmm. But they do like marine biology and also... Thank you. Marine like, biology. There we go. We got that word. Yeah. <laughs> and also like learning how to... I, they have a program for um, learning how to drive tankers. And you make like six figures just uh, driving these or, or piloting... What's the right word for a boat? Like steering these huge, huge oh, boats. Oh, the port. Yes. Right. The port is... Yeah. At one time, Galveston was the capital of Texas and um, also on par with um, New Orleans in terms of shipping and commerce and being a port. So before the port of Houston was the port of Houston, Mm -hmm. Galveston was that port. Mm. So, yes. Yeah. Huge industry there. Galveston was the capital. At one time, um, I am a history major, but you probably want to check these dates. I'm just going to throw out 1845-ish. Okay. All right, right on. And population of Galveston sounds pretty big. Uh, it isn't. I would say it goes between 40 and 60, 40 of the locals, and um, maybe uh, 60 during the summer when you fold in folks that come for tourism and stay. Um, for the summer. Like so 40,000, 60,000? 40, yes, 40,000 to 60,000. Mm-hmm. That's also a guess. You should check me on it. But, yeah. Sounds about right. So uh, when you were 10, 11, 12 years old, how did you spend your uh, free time or your spare time? Um, 
The best answer for that is swimming. And that is one of the great gifts that my parents gave me was the uh, discipline and hard work and strenuous calendar of an AAU swim team. And um, that would have been close to the peak of my career. I started with um, Lake Jackson Aquatics uh, when I was five. And I stopped swimming in my second year of high school um, so it was about a 10 year period, about five to 15. And so around 10, 11 and 12, um, I would have been keeping the calendar of, uh, working out sometimes twice a day, like three times a week, being at the pool, the Lake Jackson rec center for five thirty AM. Mm. Uh, and then also six to eight at Brazos Wood high school. <laughs> Uh, and then meets on the weekends, um, virtually every weekend, a lot of driving to get to those swim meets and a lot of hours at those swim meets. Um, so we also, uh, went up to Lake Sam Rayburn and did boating and bass fishing. Um, my dad would take mostly my brothers, but every once in a while, my sister and I to central Texas for deer hunting. And, um, we... Yeah, that was that was what I was doing when I was 10, 11, and 12. Chores, gardening. We always had animals um, and swimming. Mm. How, how many siblings do you have? Um, I have uh, – there are six of us, but we lost a brother. Uh, he was uh, in his young 20s and, and um, died tragically. Um, so there are five of us, and we are very close live all over the country, all over the world? Um, for the most part in Texas, three out of the five of us are in Texas. I have a brother who lives in Cary, North Carolina, um, which I watched on a travel show, a lady who's a Southern cook, and there's apparently either awesome kale or awesome barbecue or awesome something in Cary, North Carolina. Um, greens, mustard greens, not kale. Mm. And um, um, we live in New Hampshire, and uh, my sister lives in Webster, Texas. They don't say Webster. I'm learning how to talk New Hampshire. Mm. Right next to the Space Center, um, I have a brother that lives uh, in Brazewood, which is a suburb of Houston, and a brother that lives in Rowlett, which is a bedroom community to the east of Dallas. So, Gary, I'm, I'm guessing mustard greens and barbecue are both uh, quite exquisite there. Uh-huh. I would bet. Uh, so New Hampshire is like a pretty long ways off from Texas uh, and in many ways like a total opposite. Uh, in some ways, pretty pretty similar. But uh, <clears throat> how, how did, you know, New Hampshire become your, your place? Adopted of, home. Right. Yes. I'm working on being a granite stater. Um, well, that would be down to James Robert Lance. And um, he's my husband of 32 years now. And um, after he finished his BA, he drove around the country um, and he was applying for graduate schools. And the one that would pay him the most money to come and get a degree was Texas A&M. So um, he, uh, 
in some ways is even more Texan than I am because I never attended one of those great uh, universities nor lived in College Station, but he did. And then he went to work for um, the oil business, uh, as everyone with a geology degree in the 80s did, um, or a lot, anyway. We know some hydrologists and uh, other folks who have, have geology degrees who live up in the mountains who didn't go to work for oil, but most of the other ones did, and he did. And um, we met in Houston, Texas, and uh, our first date was to go to church together. And I thought it was to go to the ballet. That was the first real date, but the first time that we, like, I liked your dad, and then he dissed me, and so when he called back to see if he could get back in the roster, <laughs> the only thing available was church on Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> he, he probably knew he was in the doghouse when that was the only thing you gave him. And so after that, we had a proper uh, date okay. to, uh, to go to the ballet. So yeah. the, the church date was like the earn back your trust date. And yes. then you had the real first date. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, well, before we get to, I guess, dad and then how, you know, his oil job took you all over the world. Um, oh, yeah. Well, the important part about the New Hampshire part is that he was born in Claremont, New Hampshire, raised in Brattleboro, Vermont, which is very much on the border with New Hampshire. And then his parents moved to Newport, New Hampshire. So that's the New Hampshire connection is that that's where yeah, daddy's deep, from. He has deep, deep roots here. And right. That in the, in the retirement uh, drawing straws, I guess, New Hampshire won out. There's a story there too, but yes, it is okay. definitely one out. <laughs> well, okay, so let's talk about your, uh, when did Montessori hit your radar and uh, how did you decide to pursue it? Um, it was very serendipitous. Um, I was finishing up uh, my history degree at Rice. I spent my freshman year at George Washington University in DC, had terrible homesickness. Um, although in hindsight, I know I would have loved to stay there and have returned many times since. And I love the city of Washington, DC. But I went back to Rice and I finished there. Um, and I was not altogether with it in terms of what one does after college. So literally in the last couple weeks of my uh, college career, I was in the computer lab because at that point, all computers were in one room and one would go to that room to use the computer. And I called one of my mom's friends, Jane Scheidler, and um, she said, why don't you come and observe at the girls' school? She had two young children, uh, daughters who were going to Montessori school. And I said, okay. And um, I went, um, I, I don't know if I was finished with school, but I just remember spending three days because like I didn't want to leave the school. I observed for three or four hours in one classroom and then I would go to another and then I would go to another and I would ask to come back the next day. Mm -hmm. And um, pretty much after those two or three days, um, the uh, staff at School of the Woods in Houston, Texas, it's a very famous Montessori school, kind of 
hinted and nudged that I might want to do the training. And I thought, yeah, that would be great. Um, and Jane Scheidler and her husband, Otis McClay, offered uh, me t- to live in their home, help care for their daughters, and they put me through the Montessori training. Um, and um, basically, after the first time I saw it, uh, that's I, I never left it. Mm-hmm. And that's how that happened. Well, on a service level, I think, I, like Montessori, I, I think of like, hands-on and holistic and self-directed learning for kids. And I think that's kind of like the ex- external uh, perception that everybody has of it. So what's the difference between that and actually going through the training, actually putting in the work? Well, when you go through the training to become a Montessori teacher, um, what you're really learning how to do is be a guide. And it's your job to understand all that's happening in the human development of the age of the child you have. And so to bring all that study and understanding to it and then guide them as they explore their world. Um, And that happens in lots of different ways at lots of different ages. And it takes um, leadership and and stepping back, leadership and stepping back. Um, Volumes have been written and eons have been said about uh, the Montessori uh, education and there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. But one of the things that helps with that is to realize that first and foremost, Maria Montessori was a scientist. She was a medical student and she was an observer uh, first of, of animal behavior And then she decided to go to medical school and her dad supported her. And so her understanding of human development is all of the lovely French and English philosophers, you know, who shall go unnamed, but you can look them up mixed with um, an an observation, a study of children Mm -hmm. um, over years and then writing about, uh, she, so she knew about, you know, cognitive development from a physiological point of view in medical school. She knew the philosophy that was being written at the time, but then she put the practical observation to it. So um, with that triad, you come to an understanding of how to help the educational material meet the needs of the child. And that's, that's one of the... Uh, the tenets of Montessori is meeting the needs of the child. Mm-hmm. The needs of the children are emotional, cognitive, intellectual, physical, mm-hmm. spiritual. And, you know, like I said, I could go on for many hours, especially if you fed me and I continued drinking water <laughs> about how fundamental I think her work was to understanding human development and how to educate with it and for it, because we are, you know, we're brains with feet. We are, we come out ready to learn and ready to educate ourselves and ready to develop. And a lot of what she did is say, here, try this here, use that. Um, Yeah. There's like a parallel there. Uh, When I was studying linguistics in college, there was a class called language acquisition and 
everybody thinks at first, or there's a really common perception that like to, to learn a language, you kind of have to push the, all the rules of the grammar and the spellings and the, and the conjugations onto the child and like have them all write it out in patterns. Cause that's how you think of it after you've acquired it. As but, an abstract, as an abstract thinker and children are concrete thinkers. And, and to acquire languages, they don't like need to actually, how do I say it? We, we don't say children learn languages. So we say that they acquire them because they're basically like this sponge that you throw into like a, uh, yes. uh, an atmosphere. Yes. And they just pick up, like they pick up the language, they pick up the rules, they pick up the grammar uh, just by hearing people talk. And it doesn't matter if they talk in like baby simple language or if they talk in fully complex adult language. Babies and, pick it all up. And it doesn't matter what language you put them into. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a young girl, we had eight track tapes and I've seen people lay down 16. Well, the videography of a, of a human infant's brain is like, you know, 600 lines, you know. and 600 lines of? Well, you know, tracks. They take down everything. They take down the shape of the mouth, where the tongue is, the eyes, the expression of the face, whether you're using your hands, the ears. Uh They lay down so many tracks when they are ingesting um, language. And then, and they use that to over time, you know, two years Mm -hmm. of ingesting it to then start to utter it in beautiful intonation in beautiful accent you know with beautiful vowels of whatever language that they're speaking in mm-hmm. it's incredible and yeah and it is natural and if you have the right nutrition and the right support and the right love and the right stuff our intellects grow that way so you can take that metaphor, acquiring language, and give me a subject and give me an age. And Maria Montessori came up with tools, curriculum, ways and means of helping that child at that age with that subject mm-hmm. advance. It's, it gives me goosebumps all mm-hmm. the time because... If I could wave a wand, if you gave me one thing, one genie in the bottle, if I could wave a wand, every culture, every country, I would say if, if we could adapt and adopt what she found out about human development and really fold it in to how we parent, how we educate young people, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not sure who it was. I think it might've been Hitler who said, give me a kid till they're five and you know, they're mine forever. Wow. Maria Montessori studied the developmental ages of a person up to age 18 mm. chronolo- chronological, which is different from social and emotional, you know, um, and intellectual there's, four or five different ages, but she, she took the development up to age 18 mm-hmm. and she has theory for it. She has curriculum for it. It's hard work, but it's so fundamental and so in line with how our bodies and our minds are meant to grow. Mm-hmm. And that's the wand I would wave. I would have everybody be a Montessori teacher or study in a Montessori education. Mm. 
Yeah. Nice. So Amelia, you were immediately drawn to uh, Montessori way of teaching, and I think you enjoyed the classroom experience right away. What exactly was it that first day or two that really drew you to it? Um, it's probably going to be hard for me to remember. I didn't journal those days. Um, but I can tell you that when you walk into a Montessori classroom that is working, it's like being in a beehive that is working or being in an office that's working. There's a, there's a, 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 you know, a hum to it and you can just feel people's learning and listening and, and moving and, um, and, uh, it's exciting, um, but peaceful. So there was that. And, um, teachers were moving around the room. The teacher was not the center. The children were not the center. The stuff was not the center. In fact, you couldn't find the center because the center was the learning and it was happening all around. You know, there were kids talking about work they had done. There was learning going on there. There were people tying shoes or cooking. There was learning going on there. There were people cleaning up. There were people straggling in the bathrooms and, and arguing with each other about who gets what first. There's learning going on there. There were teachers teaching lessons. And so that's what was at the center. Um, not a blackboard, not a book stand, not a teacher, not a desk, but learning was, was happening and you could just feel it. Mm -hmm. And with people, you know, I mean, it wasn't perfect. It's never perfect, but uh, it was... It was very exciting. Yeah. So uh, awesome energy, positive, and uh, sounds like the uh, kids were being better every day in that environment. Well, you know, people are people, Paul. We have ups and downs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, having a, having a sister, Arielle, who, who works as a Montessori teacher, who we also brought on for this, um, I know. Oh, that that's right. You've already met my daughter. I, I've met... Uh, one of well, two of your sons now, and uh, your daughter. Andrew's yes. the only one. I, Andrew's the only one I haven't met. Andrew, yeah. nice. And uh, and dad, but he's a whole other story. Um, but basically, having a sister in Montessori, I know, I know it's not sunshine and, and rainbows because we when we do calls, or I hear indirectly from you about these, like uh, how much how difficult it is. Like you know, you make it sound like sunshine and rainbows and when it's working, it's working really well. There's right. um, right. but there's so much tremendous amount of work that's required to get to that point of like, to but, maintain that energy. But isn't there an education and don't we, shouldn't we, don't we want to give it that much hard work? Don't we want to have to work that hard? Don't we want to, to, to realize that you're not teaching a child. You are entering a sacred space of a family. And that child may come to you in a classroom, but they're bringing their family with them and they're going back home into their family. So Montessorians don't teach children. They work as partnerships with families. It's messy. Mm. It is messy. And school administration, organizing a school where you want to keep people safe and you want to include, and you want to have great experiences, and you also need to make sure people get the reading, writing, and arithmetic, that's hard work. 
Schools are hard work mm. and education is hard work. Um, invaluable, worth it. But, you know, there's some day, if you're a person that wants to, and we all know that we love accountants and we need people to crunch numbers and figure out statistics and tell us about bar graphs. But if you're a person that wants to work alone and do that kind of thing and start at nine and see what you measure that you can finish at five, you are not an educator. <laughs> you you got to get your hands wet and dirty mm. and dry and yeah uh with with people and i i don't i don't mean to make that sound trite but um yeah i i'm not sure except for parenting if there's anything harder i think yeah. nursing is very hard nursing I think it's just it's something that like work. really not everyone's cut out for and it's it's, a, it's really a hard hard job um to be a teacher not just montessori but like even if you're in, a, in the public system, I think. Correct. Because there's always going to be that contract with the right. family that you're talking about. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I think it's one of the most difficult jobs. Right. And they should be paid a lot more than they are. In so. lots of different ways. Yeah. I, I don't know why we don't value our teachers. And the older I get, the more I get to ask the question and wonder why. Yeah. And... I, I, the only reason I can think is that you cannot monetize good citizenship and healthy human development. And that's really sad. Yeah. And I think that the return on investment for really high quality education is, is beyond our time scale in our modern yep. economy. It's Definitely. Like seventh the return generation. on investment, I think, is like really big. Like mm-hmm. 20, in 20 years, this kid is probably going to be equipped to solve, mm-hmm. you know, the plastic in the ocean problem or like any, like the, the problems that the world faces, but mm-hmm. it's because of that education mm-hmm. that, uh, mm-hmm. is it, you know, I guess, yeah, we just, we're not on that time scale. We but. say, we say that we are assisting children to become lifelong learners. We say that we are loving children into being fully developed human beings and we say that we are sponsoring and demonstrating good citizenship. Hmm. That's what you walk into a classroom with as a teacher. Love that. We need that. And give me a method, give me a language, give me a country. That is where teachers live. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, okay. You want to talk about countries? Well, we, we can go there, but let's go back to monetizing uh the, the outcome of great education, I, I think the challenge there is humans tend to be greedy. And so if, if I, as a teacher, if I'm drawn to it, I am doing it because I care about bettering society and I care about bettering the folks around me. Uh, but most people don't think that way. Uh, and society cares about themselves, I think, before they care about others. And I, I don't want that to be a, a statement to color er- everybody that's part of mankind, but I, I feel like that's part of it. No, everybody- but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm following you on all the human nature stuff, but it sounds like, well, it's always going to be that way, or this is how it is, or this is the reason why. And um, I, I don't have an answer. I understand that human economics uh, runs 
the way we value things. I understand human greed. Um, there's a clock, by the way. It's going to go off seven times. Did you hear that? <laughs> I, I, I was going to bring it up for the uh, listening audience that I'm enjoying uh, a roaming cat and uh, lots of clocks. Fun <laughs> <laughs> noises. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm over it with, with the excuses and explanations. I think that I've been around long enough to see the difference between a person can support themselves. Uh, I'm now, I'm now, I'm talking about the teacher support themselves and support a family in an upwardly mobile way, getting compensated for building citizens. You know, you, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not happy with, oh, the people that are educators uh, have to be okay with sacrificing um, access to, to, to money uh, because they are doing this noble, you know, uh, altruistic kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, just, I just don't see that that's right. Um, when you take someone, uh, like for, for instance, a sport or a talent, um, I know over the years of supporting my children's talents that I paid a great deal of money to people to help them grow, to piano teachers, to ballet teachers, to uh, soccer coaches and clinics and, and summer camps. <sighs> There's got to be a way again, to that business, businesses can put money into education and somehow uh, reap a dividend. Mm. And I think when we do that, we won't necessarily take away, oh, the beauty of the learning environment and the ginning of the you know, Montessori classroom um, it, you just turn the eye of Sauron, the great money, uh, to the value of this. Um, uh, yeah, so yeah. we're not. I'm not going to change everybody's idea and and have them all come to understand how invaluable a happy, healthy citizen is. But I think one of these brilliant Montessori kids uh, can come up with an idea that could get business involved in education Mm. um, so that we can start to value teachers more and that they can uh, earn a living wage. And yeah, my wife is a teacher's aide. Uh, She's we're fortunate enough that she doesn't have to work, but she enjoys uh, teaching children and, and helping yeah. children in the classroom. Yeah. And I, I know she does not make a living wage if she was on her own. Yeah. Uh, and, and the average teacher, I don't think, makes a living wage. No. Uh, I, I think the answer is some brilliant kid that comes out of the Montessori system or, or, <laughs> or any other system right. uh, has an idea to get business involvement. But right. my way of thinking, there are billionaires and, and near trillionaires as individuals on this earth. I don't understand why they need that much money. And there are other places they can put their money besides education, but certainly education should be one of the places they look. And large companies that are making trillions upon trillions of dollars, they should be 
moving some of that money into the education system. And then we just need to figure out how to handle the, the influx of money properly. If they were smart, because students and young people are the soil out of which their businesses are going to continue to grow. And do you want uh, only the top 10% of all of the people on the planet as your soil? Why are you throwing away nine-tenths of people? Um, going Going to the whole millionaire, billionaire piling up of money thing, I I got to go cosmic on that and just we've there've always been people of a certain gender that needed to pile up lots of money. Um, <laughs> do, they, do they look like Daniel and me? <laughs> and 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 in the end their money came back into communities. One example I have and I'm sure there are others is of uh Mr. Carnegie. Mr. Carnegie was an interesting man, complex, very good and very bad. But his legacy today is that most of his money is in education, a great university. It is in little city libraries. And so for the dear Mr. Bezos and the dear Mr. Gates is of the world, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about monetizing education. I'm talking about um, the guys in the stock market, the people that are moving money and, and building wealth. Um, there's, there's got to be a way to bring an economic business focus to education so that it can be taken care of properly as the soil uh, and 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 the young plants and and the nutrients that is going to of 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 humanity that's going to rise up and help the businesses uh, in the mainstream and the main street America flourish. I think yeah. there's also a like a cultural prioritization that needs to happen as well, where people need to say like education is one of the, the top top priorities for my children. And community to say education is one of our top community There isn't priorities. a parent alive who will, well, there isn't a good parent alive who won't say to you, education is next to health, <laughs> the most important right. thing for my child. It, it's this, there's this weird disconnect between the value uh, that we place on education and what we're willing to pay for it or what a good education costs. Mm-hmm. There, there are a lot of ways to come at this. It's pretty complicated. Um, I, I just think that if we're going to live profitably in the world, and I don't mean money profit, I mean in a stewardship kind of way, mm-hmm. um, with each other, with nature, we are really going to have to start to value um, teachers and education and educational process and take care of the people that are on the front lines and the people that make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one I, of those. I, I wonder if there is a, an example locally somewhere in the world, somewhere in the U S where people are coming close to that ideal that you're describing. Well, I wonder if the work that LeBron James is doing in his hometown I wonder if the schools that are being sponsored by Oprah in South Africa 
um, a charter schools to a certain extent. Um, but still, there's not uh, a decent teacher, and I won't even say good or better or best, just a decent teacher, just one that shows up and delivers and protects kids and allows learning to go on and does her homework. I'm sorry. She needs, in this country, in any city you pick, in any state you pick, she needs six figures to, yeah. to take care of herself and take care of her family and to be rewarded for the work she does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of a, there's an unfortunate irony, too, because the, the, the low pay means that only, the only people that are attracted are people that are in it for the real value for the, for the societal good. The, the, the teachers that are attracted to the teaching profession do it because they don't care about the money. They want to help society. So it, it's actually attracting, you know, the best kind of people, but they're all getting underpaid and aren't, aren't able to really have a, a, a great living. And there's some folks that find their niche um, and, and that's okay. Um, in my case, I was only able to continue being a Montessori teacher because your dad was making enough money to take care of our family. Same thing in Paul's family with, with his wife. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a big topic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to uh, (laughs) your story. Um, So let's, let's jump into the uh, you know, the, all the moving around that we did as a family. So, well, well, hold on, Daniel, let's back up. So you, you grew up in Texas, you go to college in DC for a year and then yes. you get home. Then you get homesick, and then you yes. find yourself as an adult living all over the world, raising four kids. Well, I had done some traveling in high school. Um, my grandmother Mimi and my uncle Jeffrey, as well as my parents, made sure that I'd done some traveling. And when Jim and I were courting, one of the things he said to me is that that he he knew that the only for both for the, for both the reasons of securing his wealth, which is a big focus for my husband, and I'm very grateful for it, and also expanding his career, uh, he knew he was going to go and work abroad, and he called it expatriate. And would I be okay with that? This was in the courtship where you're trying to figure out, you know, you're sizing each other up for, you know, religion and money and kids and all those big topics. And I I thought that was kind of nice. We were out at a party, a retirement party for a bunch of guys who lived abroad uh, in the 50s and 60s in the Middle East. And after that party, he said, I'm going to go abroad. Is that going to be okay with you? And I'd done enough traveling to go, yeah, sure. I'm super cool with all that. So um, it really wasn't a shocker, a surprise when he took his first trip to Indonesia, uh, to Jakarta to uh, consult. And um, then we moved out of Texas uh, up to Colorado, which was like moving to paradise Um, in the mountains. We lived at 8,000 feet and our view was Mount Evans every morning, which is one of the 14ers there. and so it wasn't surprising, really, when he came home, uh, when I had an infant in arms, and he said, we're moving to La Paz, Bolivia. 
Right. And to be honest, I didn't really know the difference between Bolivia and Bulgaria. Sorry. I'm, I'm a college educated person, but you know, geography is a field unto itself. And La Paz, I did know because I was being educated about mountains since I married a mountain man. La Paz is a very tall city and it has a very large mountain in it. And he was very excited about that. But where we ended up was on a place much more like the Savannah um, in um, Santa Cruz, Bolivia, which is just the heart of, uh, of a very special place um, in Bolivia. So the, so the fact that we were going to go abroad wasn't a surprise to me. Um, the fact that we were going to be expatriate oil workers, I... I was I was down with that when when it started. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God. I feel like if you had gone into that blind, it, I don't things probably would have ended not so great. So I I did go into it blind because I went into it with a very romanticized idea about what it would be like. Um so and then it wasn't. That There's a way. lot about God and Jesus and Bible study and women friends that had to do with me coping. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so we, we lived in Santa Cruz, yes. Bolivia. We lived yes. on a quinta, yes, which is uh, an old word meaning like an estate or like a fifth is I think the actual Spanish uh, translation. Um, and D- daddy will know a quinta does rec- mean to a fifth. I don't know if it's of a certain number of acres uh-huh. or a certain number of hectares. Um, it's, let's say it's basically a walled football field. That's, that's a good metaphor for Paul at least. Right. Uh, we, yeah, that good. works for me. Yes, We're good with you. football fields. <laughs> I, I prepped her on you, Paul. And uh, <laughs> I think she looked military. <laughs> just, just, just kind of a meathead, yeah. <laughs> no, I've listened to several podcasts, and I don't think anybody hanging out with my son is a meathead. You guys have hung out a lot together. I know. We've, uh, we've done a lot of recording. I think we are approaching triple-digit hours. Triple-digit hours and over how many months? Started in January, I guess. Yeah, January. Yeah. So, really? Yeah, it's it's never what I've guessed. Like 2020, like the the one friend I'd be spending most of my time with was double my age. <laughs> yeah, right. But hey, wait, 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 not quite double. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're not there yet. Um, we can move you back a category. You can be in your 40s, Paul. That's okay. You just turned 50 pretty recently, didn't you? Uh, I'm, I'll be 52 at the end of the year. Yeah, um, well, see, I, I really think he's still in his 40s. Don't you still have children at home? I have three children at home. Oh, yeah. okay. Sorry. You're still in your 40s because you're intense parenting. Yes. My, uh, my oldest is going to college in the fall, and my youngest is uh, going to be in eighth grade. Oh, bless your heart. This is really intense parenting. Yeah, we're yeah. going to give you – you're in your 40s. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll take it. You're just a decade younger now. <laughs> so, uh, in Bolivia, I, I don't have a lot of memories, but I do remember that we had a lot of animals. We had sheep, chickens, a goat, a pig, um, and a boa constrictor, and spider monkeys. So why, like, did you play a part in us having all those animals? Yes. 
Um, first of all, a quinta, these quintas were thought of as the second home uh, for people who had uh, houses in town. So it's basically the lake house or um, the camp or um, someplace like that. So people didn't normally live in quintas. They just went there on the weekends or for a few weeks out of the year. Um, and so who did live on the quinta was the caretaker. So um, not one to be doing things uh, like everybody else. Um, Jim decided that for his four children and for his wife, who's into things like animals, that, well, we just live in a vacation home, right? And um, we moved into the Quinta with uh, another family living there, um, the caretaker, William, and his wife, Charo, and their children. So my children had instant playmates and perhaps instant vectors for all kinds of interesting diseases and parasites, but that's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> neither here nor there. Just one of the things you work out is, uh, is that everybody needs to wear flip-flops at all times because mm. you really don't want worms coming in your feet and they will. Mm. Um, so uh, we had uh, mandarin trees. Um, we had a swimming pool. Uh, and we had two houses. We had the back house and the front house. Mm -hmm. And I put the library and the children in the front house. The library, the children, and Ruthie in the front house. And the uh, living room, it mostly had a keyboard in it. And the dining room, which was, it's one long room. It's like a long house. Uh -huh. And then a wall at the back. And then Jim and I were uh, kind of in the master bedroom behind that wall. And that was the second house. The second and house that's was the second room, house. Kitchen, dining yes. room. Yes. And, and the master. So this was great for me. Um, sense of adventure was just fine. Um, until I started looking around to see that most of the women in my station, because now I have a station because I'm an expat wife and I'm white in a country where people are brown and do not have uh, the kind of money that we had coming in. Uh, so most of the women in my station were living in palatial mansions in fashionable neighborhoods in Santa Cruz. And I am living in a camp two and a half, eight, maybe eight and a half kilometers outside of town on a dirt, bumpy dirt road and behind a gate. And there was part of me that was super okay with that. Uh, but it was definitely also a culture shocking moment. Um, I learned that part of what my job was, um, was not just mom and wife, but now I was an employer because when you live on a quinta with all of those things that need to be managed in the Bolivian way of managing them, you need William to take care of, uh, the water distiller and the pool and the trees, and the chickens that lived in the trees. And you need Charro to take care of William. And you need Ruthie to help you with the laundry because it's not a simple process. And um, the other thing that my husband gave me uh, was a driver when we moved there because someone at the office told him that the, uh, only, you only need two things in Bolivia. You need gray tape and you need a Bolivian. 
And so uh, we had Jose, our driver, for 30 days to get us orientated. And at the end of the 30 days, uh, when he brought me back to the office and it was going to be his last day, Jim just looked at my face and he said, we're going to hire Jose. <laughs> and, and I said, okay, I think I can make it another day. Because anytime I had a question, Jose had an answer and he could take me there. And um, so with the help of these amazing people, you know, Ruthie could make gourmet food out of what I brought her from the market. She was amazing. I mean, we had carrot souffles and I couldn't cook rice for five years after leaving Bolivia because she did such a beautiful job of it. Um, and William and Charro and their children, Bea and Juana, and then they had a third child, Joelle, when we were there. Um, yeah, so those people helped me um, cope with living in a camp um, and living on the wild side. And because that that gets to go to work. He wakes up and goes to work every day, finds the oil, makes the big bucks, and come comes home, goes to sleep, wakes up the next day. You and know, he's like fed amazing gourmet meals by Ruthie while yeah. he does this. And breakfast, you're, you're at home, lunch, and dinner. You're dealing yes. with the problem that is for children. Uh, well, it's your, not the children. I mean, I, remember, I was a trained Montessori teacher. Right, children sorry. are not problems. Children and um, this entirely new culture that you were in. And I will say that dad also had some culture shock. He did not have the tools he needed at work. He had pencils and erasers instead of Sun Systems uh, tri-screen computers. Mm -hmm. um, he had a language issue because a lot of the folks he was working with didn't speak English and he didn't speak enough Spanish. Uh, and he had the cultural issue of now he was the boss man. And instead of collaborating, people wanted to be told what to do. Uh, so Daddy had a rough hoe in Bolivia, a rough row to hoe in Bolivia, and he ended up doing the work of five men while he was there, the equivalent, honestly. Wow. Now, how that affected me as a wife is that absolutely he was absent because he was giving his all to the Chaco and I don't even know where he was finding oil, but he was finding it and he was helping other people find it so they could keep their jobs. You know, it was a lot going on. So yes, I was pretty much parenting and mothering on my own. And it was crazy. One story that particularly involves you um, was, uh, I'm not sure exactly how this happened, but you were doing something near the pool and got stabbed in the armpit. Oh, yeah. By... I was trying to climb over a fence. Yeah. I still remember that. Oh, please and tell me what yeah, happened to we you. We were playing, I think, hide and seek or tag or something. Yes. And I ran to go uh, climb over a fence that I'd climbed over a million times before. Yes. And it was a, it was a, ch a chain link fence. Yes. And it had the little spindly parts at the top. Yes, that were all rusted and broken off. Yeah, and yes. so I went up and, I, and my foot slipped and I fell and it, and it went right up into my armpit. Yes. So, and you know, I came home from Bible study or the market it, where I'd seen people kill chickens in front of me or I got off the phone or I even just woke up and I would come home to these things like, okay, now my son has four forms of botulism, tetanus, rabies, and you know, toxic things happening. And I'm in a country where, 
oh, there's only the Foanini clinic and I hope they're open and I hope it's Dr. Foanini there instead of uh-huh. maybe a Bolivian doctor. And do they have the right things they need to give my son? Gosh, I totally forgot about that. That was crazy. Right. I thought I was going to die. I remember, I remember like riding in the car to go to the, to the place and everything. Blood. Yeah. A lot of blood. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that was a something. Yeah. And, and, and then and daddy, you, you had to like deal with problems like this, but you didn't have like the institutions that you grew up with in the States that you were used to relying upon like a nine one one, you know? Right. There's no nine one one. Jose is nine one one. Like what, what we what we what we depend on in the U.S. from a governmental perspective, and like a structural perspective, you had to develop on like this network of of Bolivians and, and locals that you kept close to your to your uh, breast at all times. Um, and then I learned, I learned to uh, yes, d- d- depend on and to work with and and to ask for help with, and, um, you know, and we had the Quinta with those plants and those fences and those ladders, um, and those places for you guys to play and a place to have all of those animals, as opposed to putting you in bedrooms that looked like American suburban bedrooms in, uh, you know, a palatial estate right. in the city. So that was a choice that we made. We made, the, the we made the choice made for choice. adventure. Yes. Like whenever yes. we went to a new country, we didn't always live where all the other American white expat oil working families live. No. And we did not, um, uh, we did not always imbibe into that culture. Which is amazing to me because if I'm going somewhere completely in the unknown, I would reach out immediately for the things that are most familiar Yes. For the social structures that would support me the best. Yes. So I'd be like, whoever did, whatever, like the person just like me did before I did, like before me, I'm going to go and do that too. I'm going to go live in the same place they did. Put my kids in the same school. Yes. You didn't even put us in the same school in Bolivia. No, I didn't. You put us in a fully Spanish speaking Montessori school. Correct. Correct. (laughs) Because I was very idealistic when we got to Bolivia. I felt like we could live in the culture and I didn't understand that we weren't going to become Bolivian. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the things I learned in Bolivia was that we were always going to be white upper-class Americans and with an American culture that, that also became my job to protect that, to protect Thanksgiving, to protect the 4th of July. They don't celebrate the 4th of July in Bolivia, but we did. Or in Kuwait, yeah. To protect Martin Luther King, to protect President's Day, just take the calendar. We celebrated those days. And we celebrated all the Bolivian days. Because I said, what's important to William and Charro? Because we were living in community. So it was my job to make a home and, and, and keep our culture and keep it be a place that you guys knew, even though Ariel was, what, seven when we went abroad? So she wouldn't have known. But this paid off later because even though you are rootless, you have a culture, and it's not necessarily an American culture because we didn't watch all the TV and we didn't do the American football and all those tags that you would say, oh, that's America. 
but you did have a home culture with traditions and uh, uh, ways of doing things mm-hmm. that were tied to this country, tied to our mommy's and daddy's culture. Uh, and, and, and I, I always prioritized uh, those and that gave you, I'm believing a, a way to have rootedness, even though we were very much foreigners in a foreign land mm-hmm. five or six different times. We, our family was our roots. Right. And, and so I, in Bolivia, I had to learn to embrace that, no, I'm not going to become Bolivian. We're not going to fold in. We're not going to be brown. We're not going to speak Spanish. We're going to be who we are. Well, Asher spoke Spanish. <laughs> right. yeah. We're going to be who we are. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, being a good Montessorian, that we're not going to imbibe, that we're not going to embrace, that we're not going to uh, learn to respect uh-huh. the culture that we live in. And learning the language is the first part of that. So you bet I found a Montessori school. It was fully Spanish. And you guys went eight hours a day for eight weeks. And you stayed there or Asher stayed there for even more than that, a year or more. I don't know. Yeah. So there's a dance when you're an expat mom of keeping your culture and embracing the one you're in, but also recognizing you're a foreigner and you're, you need to treat yourself that way because that allows other people to treat you that way. And that's what's comfortable. Mm -hmm. So for instance, Ruthie did not want to eat at our dinner table, which I thought was horrible. I thought, oh, we've got to include Ruthie. You know where Ruthie wanted to eat? She wanted to go eat with William and Charo because those are her people. Uh Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. We wanted, and so um, Ruthie ate with us for a long time and fed you during that time. (laughs) Uh, Because was I like old enough to feed myself? But, and I just asked her to feed me. Okay, when you got to Bolivia, how old were you? Like two. 97, 93. You were four years old, of course. And <laughs> so I, could, I could feed myself, but I would sit there and like right. and just open my mouth. And right, and it's simplistic me. to say there were other factors at play. But let's just say, because I said to Ruthie, please stay at our dinner table and share our dinner table. What she did was, you know, start to feed you guys. She couldn't really get out of her servant role. I had to learn that. Uh, I had to learn that I'm an employer and I have a station and she's an employee and she has a station and we live in different worlds and we're partners in some things, but I need to let her have her world and I need to embody my world. I learned that in Bolivia. I learned how to be an employer mm. and I learned how to build a community of folks who could help me deal with um the different culture uh situations um that i faced yeah and i also worked hard to make sure that wherever we lived you guys had friendships because those are also roots Mm -hmm. you had real connections with real people whether they were brown or white it didn't matter uh i mean in other words whatever if they were like with Juana and Bella, mm-hmm. um, you know, you guys could still connect with them on Facebook and they'd know who you were and you'd know who they were, right? You have the choice now to be in their lives or not. And then you have some friends that you went to school with. Um, right. 
So whether they were from the country of origin that we lived in or from the expat community, building friendships for you guys was very important. Mm. Well, uh, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, so it uh, sounds like in Bolivia, you figured out how you wanted the world around you to, uh, to be and how to function. So a- after all those learnings, what was your uh, favorite place that, that you lived after Bolivia outside the U.S.? <laughs> this is one of those questions that I always turn around. Um, it's a question that's very difficult for uh, expats to answer. Um, well, let's list them out before you answer. So just real quick, we were in Bolivia, then we were okay. in England, then we were in Texas again, and you homeschooled us instead of putting us into public school. Uh, again, the Montessori thing. And then we went to Kuwait, and then we went to Egypt. And right. now, now you're in New Hampshire. Right. So, so we lived in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Um, we lived in Sunningdale, uh, which is to the west of London, by a, a healthy train ride um, near Egham and Virginia Water and Ascot. <laughs> and we lived in Kuwait City. We lived in Adan neighborhood Adan. of Kuwait City. And we lived in Al-Mahdi in Cairo, which is the expat community, uh, long-time expat community in Cairo. Um, in a ver- it's, uh, it's very much south of the city, uh, yeah. of the downtown city. It's like 20 minutes away. Right. 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 So um, the, the, the question I'd like to answer about being a mom, being a wife, being a woman uh, in those places, um, is, um, to which one did you adapt the best so that you could have a life, um, so that you could have a, not, not just a successful life, but a life that was the best expression of us as a family or me as a mom, mm-hmm. you know, where, where did I, uh, where did I um, adapt to the best to feel um, the most a part of a place? <laughs> that's a silly, I'm sorry. No, that's, <laughs> no, it's all good. I, I can't say that I loved England more than Kuwait city. Um, because I made some friends in Kuwait City. I-, I walked in a desert that I saw bloom in the spring. And you can give me all the Windsor Parks and amazing, beautiful vistas in England. And oh my God, it is a beautiful country. But to see that desert bloom in a place where people are having a hard time and where families are having a hard time and where it's dusty and dirty. And uh, I mean, where, where did you see this desert bloom? You mean in, like literally in Kuwait city flowers and yeah. In our, in our desert where I walked the dogs. Oh, our little patch. It wasn't little then it was, let's go back to football fields. The desert that I walked the dogs in was probably 10 football fields. Oh, man. I'm not talking about our front yard, baby. Oh, the one that you drive out to. Yeah. Oh, okay. But it's between our house and the freeway. Okay. 
and you saw that <laughs> you know where i met the camels and where the old ship was and where that mosque it was did you not spend any time with me in the desert with the dogs i feel like i must have yes i do too um may, a picture would probably jog my memory yeah so it bloomed okay yes um and it, you're just basically it's it's hard to compare really like one it really city, is one because place of living to another place of living. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to say you have a favorite. So yeah. why, don't, why don't we, why don't we ask you the question that you like being asked, which is where which did place? I, where did I feel like I adapted the best yes. at the end, given that we were always going to be foreigners in a foreign land. Right. <sighs> um, it's definitely going to come down between the UK and Bolivia. Um, there's just a place where you, you can't get comfortable. I couldn't get comfortable in the Middle East, in the places that I lived. Maybe if we had lived in Jordan or Lebanon, uh -huh. I would have a different answer. But um, in Kuwait City, with a very diff defined strata of gender and nationality yep. and in Cairo with the pollution. Yeah. God, no, I mean, city. the Sahara and the Nile and all of Africa. I mean, it's just mind blowing how amazing that place is. Uh -huh. And the, the history you know, and Char and, and Zach, yeah. I mean, I can go on and, but, um, but where I adapted most is probably Bolivia and then England. Interesting because Bolivia is your first, uh, was the first one. I do remember you, you really took to England though. You really enjoyed a lot about that culture and you still follow the Royal family. I love the Royal family, but you know what? We really need to leave them alone. What does that mean? We pay for them and not we, the British citizens pay for them. Yep. So they feel like that they can, that they need to be put in a box and always be uh, on, on show like mm -hmm. a diorama. And, um, and they do to a certain extent. And the queen does hold an amazing place of service and nobility in her culture and country. Um, but I really get Harry and Meghan leaving. Oh, right, right. Yeah. That's who you're talking about. Yeah. Cool. It's sad because the royals can't really be people. They've got to always be royals. They have a station. They have a station. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. are they at peace with that station? Right. And can we let them be that without, you know, mm. too much interference? All right. Here's, a, here's another. Uh, one of the themes uh, that I've, I've seen from you of across all the places we lived was this like rescuing theme where you would seek, you would, you would identify the, the beings that were in most need and you would uh, help in whatever way you could. Um, and so that couple of examples of that are, are the dogs in Kuwait, which we want to hear about. Okay. Uh, and cause I've told the story, but I don't think I could tell as well as you do. And uh, helping with the Sudanese refugee learning center in Cairo Okay. Those are just two. There were others as well, but like, yeah. Tell us about the the 
why did we have like nine dogs in our basement in Kuwait? <laughs> in the kitchen, darling. In the kitchen. I would never put them in the basement. <laughs> it was the kitchen in the outside basement, right? It was that. Uh, the outside behind the second kitchen. And we yeah, had- there were some nights that somebody had to go to the basement. Right. Yeah. Okay. We had some real screamers so, sometimes. What's yeah. the deal with the dogs in Kuwait? Oh, well, this was definitely a culture shock moment. Um, we were leaving Houston, and I had bothered to check out the ballet schools for my daughters. I felt like my sons were going to be okay. I felt like Andrew could play soccer, and you know. And so I was speaking to the uh, HR lady, and I said, um, "Can I put up a fence so that my dogs can have an outdoor area?" And she said. You can put up a fence, but not for the dogs. Um, and through the course of that conversation, which didn't take very long, about eight sentences, I learned that my dogs were not welcome in that country. And um, so when we got there, I was told I could not have my dogs with me. And so I put them in um, a vet that was actually run by a British woman. And uh, so one of the very first things that happened was that I made myself known as a dog person to this lady. And um, every business in Kuwait has to be sponsored by a Kuwaiti. And the British woman who was running this veterinary clinic for the Kuwaiti um, was uh, had gotten involved with rescue and the rescue there is very much like the rescue here. You know, you have people that hoard, you have breeding farms, you have, uh, you, you know, there's reasons that, that pets are not taken care of. Well, what happens in Kuwait is they're brought in in the Friday market as puppies and they're sold because they're cute and they end up on people's roofs. Um, and the maid is told to take care of them. And the maid is usually from a country, which also. Hey, Paul. Yeah, you guys froze uh, audio and video for about a minute, and then I could hear your mom. I could hear Amelia, but I, uh, you weren't moving. All right. What was the last thing you heard? Um, she was. She had just started telling why there were dogs in your house, how they ended up there. Okay. The, so, connection, the connection to the British woman was where we left off. Correct. So... I had Tonka and Leia with um, this British woman who was managing this veterinary. And, um, Tonka and I Leia, had, are, there are two Australians. Yes, because we were in temporary housing. Yep. Yes. And so I couldn't have my dogs in temporary housing. Mm-hmm. So I had them at the vet boarding. Okay. And I think it's a Saturday. And I think Saturday in Kuwait was Monday. I got a call from her and she said, we're being shut down because the Kuwaiti family found out that she was doing some rescuing, that she was picking up dogs um, out of the desert and off of people's rooftops and helping them find homes, kind of on the side. Um, And Kuwaitis didn't do, he was not involved in the veterinary in any way. He just signed the form. So it wasn't that she was doing something that was perhaps, um, oh, I don't know how to describe this. She wasn't bringing him money by doing the rescue. And that's what Kuwaiti signing on business is for. I I sign a paper for you to start a business, 
but you have to pay me a lot of money. Mm. And you can't break any cultural rules. Well, dogs are unclean. And so anything to do with dogs that isn't uh, keeping them as furry little critters for a while uh, is, is unclean. Mm -hmm. And so the Kuwaiti found out that she was, um, helping dogs. Um, um, she was doing spaying and neutering, which is a surgery for dogs that were found in the desert. So they wouldn't just replicate and become packs of dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and he wasn't making any money by that. So she called and said, we're being shut down. And I said, right, I'll come get Tonka and Leia. No worries. And she said, well, is there any way that you can take another dog with you? And um, yes, she just whelped. And, oh. and, and she had, and we had to help her uh, whelp. And so um, we, no, as soon as she delivered, we spayed her. So she was recovering from a surgery and she had like four or five puppies. And she knew the right person to ask because I went and got Tonka and Leia. And who did I get? Who was our first dog in Kuwait? Uh, Maggie. <laughs> Maggie. Yeah, yeah. I got Maggie. So with four children in a two-bedroom apartment, which was our temporary housing, I now had two Australian shepherds, like 50 and 60 pounds, in the desert. It's mm -hmm. hot in Kuwait. Mm -hmm. We got there in... July-ish. And I had Maggie with puppies. Poor daddy when he came <laughs> home from work. <laughs> and so I, I then learned why Arabs dress in long uh, clothes that cover all of their body parts, because I would have to walk these dogs in sandstorms. And basically you just want to have goggles on and Lawrence of Arabia, so that mm -hmm. the sand just sand blasts around you. Right. And, and you have to help the dog's feet with Vaseline, and you have to brush their hair out so that you don't bring in a sandbox full of sand uh -huh. when you're walking them in a sandstorm. And the reason I was often walking them in sandstorms was because I was walking them before sunrise and after sunset because no one could see that the dogs were in the apartment. So yes, I was cooking for all of you and you were all wearing your darling Kuwait English school uniforms with your books and your lunches and your ties and we were carpooling and I was taking care of three dogs and four puppies. And that was the beginning of dog rescue in Kuwait. And once you go in that deep, you just don't stop. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we moved out of that little apartment to a big house. A huge house. It had... 11 rooms and seven bathrooms and an elevator. So it was plenty of room for all of my books, Ariel's ballet floor and dogs. <laughs> it had two kitchens. The front was a show kitchen that looked like an American kitchen. And the back was uh, the real kitchen where the help was supposed to cook. And it was an industrial kitchen. And we kept animals all over the house mm. because, um, I got involved with, when that vet was shut down, I met a lady named Karen Oroby, and she worked with another lady named Aisha Al-Humadi, who lives in Lyme, New Hampshire now, and set up another shelter. And um, we would do um, 
we would do, we had several days. Uh, Tuesdays was rooftop days and we would drive around and we would listen uh, and we would ask the maids, are there any animals on the roof? And we would, while the, while the people were out of the house, ask them to, to take us up to look at the animal um, or if an animal was chained in a cage, um, we would we would pretty much uh, rescue, uh, lift, uh, deliver, uh, take animals that were in horrible stead. What's the rooftop thing again? Well, do you remember uh, the houses in the Middle East? Well, so they're like cubes. The, they're, they're cement just, cubes, yeah. yes. And they're very large and have a lot of marble. So the families live on different levels. And often you'll have multiple uh, families in one of the cubes. Uh-huh. That's why we had that little tiny kitchenette upstairs. Yep. And then we had the servants' quarters at the very top where right. we put Andrew, God love him. <laughs> <laughs> and the laundry room was up there. Yep. And then I had the poster room. Mm-hmm. So do you remember going out on the roof there? I remember, no, I, I remember there being roofs, but wh- why were there dogs on the roofs? Because dogs are unclean. And so once they're no longer roly-poly puppies, and once they pee and poop, once they start to chew things, once they demand things that dogs need, um, they're put on the rooftop on a chain. And the maid is told to take care of them. And maybe she doesn't. Mm. So water, heat, no food, no shelter. And sometimes the maids would tell us about the dogs. But mostly the dogs were very, uh, would get away. And so we could go in our desert. Do you remember the big greyhound I I rescued? Peter the Great. Peter the Great. Yep. So... He was a Great Dane. He was a Great Dane. Yeah. What did I say? You said Greyhound. Sorry. He's a Great Dane. Right. He was gray. So come to find out, um, Peter the Great um, was one of the Great Danes that one of the king of Kuwait's daughters had brought in. And um, she had gifted this dog to one of her nieces or nephews or sisters or whatever and that family did not value the great dane and so it went up on the roof or it got let out or whatever anyway i found it in our desert um but everyone knew because everyone in the know knows who brings the dogs in from where do they come and how do they get there and so in the Muslim religion and in Kuwait's version of the Muslim religion. So I just want to quantify, I don't want to say any um, blanket statements because my knowledge is only what I experienced in Kuwait. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, The Kuwaitis don't have a uh, monopoly on hypocrisy. Um, okay. So from what I understood, dogs are unclean in Islam and you have to wash in sand seven times if their saliva touches you and not pray and ask for a dispensation and a bunch of other things I can't really remember. But people love animals. People love pets. Children love animals. They need animals for their development. And so the Friday market would bring in anything from everywhere, 
You could get animals, uh, uh, monkeys and snakes and parrots and dogs of all kinds. And there was a lot of money in Kuwait. So um, these breeders in Europe uh, of, of, of Alsatians and of uh, uh, Great Danes and Mastiffs and Eskimo dogs, you know, a Kuwaiti would show up at their door and ask for a puppy and, you know, appear a certain way and make certain promises. And then it would come back to Kuwait City and be at the mercy of the maid in the rooftop. Mm-hmm. And um, so we had a kennel full of dogs like that. And the dogs that we ended up having in our houses house all the time were dogs that were on their way out that um, had been adopted and needed some socializing, uh, needed some time away from the kennel, um, or the contact was going to be that they were going to come collect the dog from there mm. um, uh, to get on the plane and things like that. Okay. Uh, we also got bad cases of ringworm because I had seven bathrooms. I could isolate dogs to for ringworm treatment. Oh, I see. Ringworm yeah. is very hard to get rid of in dogs. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> you're, uh, you're muted, bud. It's a real operation you had going there, Amelia. Uh, I was the third wheel. I was the one on call. I did not... I would go and volunteer at the shelter, but mostly I did rooftop days. And then as time went on, I did E-days, which is euthanasia. Um, We could find one vet uh, who would euthanize uh, dogs and cats and other animals that we found that needed to just be uh, let go and passed on to the great beyond. And we would pay them copious amounts of money um, because that was also against Islam. You can't take life. You can't Mm. support life necessarily, but you also can't take it. And so to find a doctor that would help us do that and then to be present for the animal and do it in a dignified way, um, those were hard days, Wednesdays. E days. Mm. Yeah. And um, I think there's a temptation to just, when you tell people that you moved around to cities or countries like Kuwait, like, Hey, yeah, it was cool. Everything was a desert. The night sky was beautiful. Yeah. The blooming, the foxes, but yeah. Uh, in Kuwait and Egypt, I remember specifically there's, there are these underbellies of these like pretty, pretty, uh, dark issues uh socially you know yes chaining rooftops on dogs and also this like yes. lower class of people that they would import from yes. uh, bangladesh and indonesia to be yes to help nepal sri lanka indonesia um india um, and it was pretty much indentured servitude i mean they yes. would bring the people over yes uh and this is a pretty like basic understanding the philippines yes but they they would bring people over and and then they'd pay them and they'd send the money back to their family well before we go there before we go there i want to go back to what you started with which is the underbellies yeah every country every culture in every time is going to have its underbellies um your mom for better or for worse uh would often get involved with those underbellies where we lived um, in, in the Middle East in particular, because um, 
I was uh, a white woman and a foreigner. And there, so I had um, power and influence uh, because of that. And I was also in some ways untouchable because they expect foreigners to try to do that stuff. Um, you can't go too far. And there's some things that we're not going to talk about that I did with regard to helping uh-huh. young women um, in Kuwait uh, on, on this podcast. But um, I, I like to say that Kuwait was where Jesus graduated me from rescuing animals to rescuing people. And um, he did so by the help of two amazing expat wives, one a nurse and Judith Pease. Uh. Uh, who had lived uh, in Indonesia. And so she started speaking to the Indonesian women and she learned that in the basement of the embassy there, um, in a room the size of this, there were 300 women living, women who had run away from their employers and who were asking to be sent back to their countries because there is, in effect, a slave trade of immigrant workers um, from those countries that we mentioned into uh, specifically uh, the Arab uh, Emirates, uh, the the wealthy Arab countries in the Middle East Mm -hmm. for the purposes of construction and house cleaning and janitorial and Mm -hmm. hospital labors and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... um, I was on the very edge of that because I was willing, because I loved these women, uh, um, Sarah and Judith, and they knew their way around. Um, Sarah Johnson, there's, uh, there's uh, Medicine Some Frontiers. She's a, she's a type like that. People that will go into the darkest of places and help the least of these. Mm-hmm. So I tagged along with Sarah and Judith and I did the educational part. <laughs> we sang songs and I tried to teach them English. Um, remittance labor is a huge um, economic force in the world. And um, and slavery is a huge economic force in the world. What's a remittance labor? Well, remittance labor is what happened uh, um, when, um, remember Shamil yep. and, and, and his wife who lived with us? Mm-hmm. So um, they would take part of their salary and send it home to his family and then to her family. So when... Uh, employers, and that's in air quotes, would go to these countries, say the Philippines or Indonesia or Sri Lanka or India or Nepal, Bangladesh. There are many countries that they go to. They say, you know, you can come and work here and, you know, you're going to make lots of money. Lots of promises are made. They're brought here. They're kept in rooms at airports. Their passports are taken. Um, uh, as an employer, and I've been in these places, you go in and you flip through a book and you pick the person and then they go home with one little tiny suitcase and you can lock them in their room and you can not give them days off. They don't have anywhere they can go. They dress them in pajamas. Um, they're expected to do all of the really hard child rearing work, you know, the diapering and the clothing and the feeding 
without language because they speak a different language than the Kuwaiti child and also without being able to discipline. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's a horrible, horrible system. It's a twisted system of you're my servant and you need to take care of the things I don't want to take care of. And really nobody gets taken care of in that situation because the child doesn't get taken care of properly. The servant, of course, is abused in many different ways. A lot of uh, sexual uh, abuse uh, by the employers and the sons of the employers. It's rampant. And, um, and the women verbally abuse them and or assault them. Uh, and, and the families can't be at peace living that way. Right. And that's not always the case. Our Kuwaiti neighbors had um, people that came f- uh, and worked from other places. Um, and she was kind to them. But she did lock them in at 8 p.m. every night. And they couldn't come out of their room until she opened the door the next morning. And that was just the way it is. That was just the way it was. Mm-hmm. And it it is slavery because they do not have their papers. They do not have say-so over their money. Um, and many times, and they don't have any recompense for the abuse they may suffer. So they run away. They live in the bottoms of the embassies, and then they get deported uh, in big uh, cargo airplanes. Um And the cycle just keeps happening again and again and Mm. again and again. Um, And those women are very sad when they get to the bottom of that basement, not only to be living with 300 other women with one spigot and one toilet and to not know when and if they're ever going to get to go home because the people, the bureaucrats up top have to do all the wranglings with the Kuwaitis to make sure that none of this gets exposed. Mm. Um, they They also don't have anything to show for when they go home and they might even have a child. And a lot of times those Kuwaitis say those children are ours and they keep them in orphanages in Kuwait, the child of the laborers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there are deep, dark underbellies and we know the five things that run the world and slavery is one of them, oil, money, arms, diamonds, and Kuwait uh, has its, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what happens in Kuwait. There are a lot of aspects of, uh, of enslaved living that immigrant laborers do here. We are not immune. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a human condition. Yeah. It's always been there. It may always be there. And its expression in Kuwait and the uh, Arab states is one way. And yeah. its expression. It's, it's amazing thinking that in one country you can have such opulent wealth with the Lamborghinis and the Maseratis. Correct. And these mansion like houses. Correct. And then you can have this destitute, horrible uh, poverty and slavery. Right. Living in the same, under the same roof, you know? Right. But let me just say, I wish I could pick my own state or the state I've adopted now, but. Um, there are farms in Vermont that you want to feel like are beautiful, rustic, uh, you know, old McDonald places. Mm-hmm. And there are, there's housing there that is not much more than a shed that immigrant laborers come and live in and don't have much more than a spigot. And they, they do an awful lot of very hard 
agrarian work and then they go back to where they're from, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, nowhere's immune. Uh, but I am, I'm really glad that it's illegal, you know. I mean, like, I think one of the things that moving around a lot as a kid afforded me was like the ability to come in close contact with practices and destitute poverty and these underbellies, you know, like I didn't, I didn't like see people die or anything crazy like that, but, mm-hmm. uh, you could see, you know, you know, poverty when you see it and it was everywhere in Cairo and in Kuwait. Right. And, uh, it, you know, living in America now, of course, America is not perfect, but gosh, like I, I'm so grateful to, to, to live in America. Like, that that even you know even if you are an immigrant like you know and you live in a shed and you don't have your papers uh there's still your odds you know are still so great and and if you ever like are our legal status then you yes. can still even with all the discrimination and everything in this country you can still work yes. your way up you know i i still believe in that even though it's becoming less and less popular but you know at least legally i'm so glad that that like human life is, is giving, given, uh, value, you know, we do better at dignity and that's a really strong statement in a week like this. Yeah, I know. Um, the difference is that what happened this week and last week and what has happened too many times this year in this country would not have ever been seen in Kuwait. Oh gosh, or Cairo. I mean, uh, or a lot of other countries. And that's just another Tuesday. Yes. And so we're not better, but on the timeline of the arc reaching towards justice, we might be a few notches along. We still have our battles, but yeah. I, yeah. And, and everybody in the world wants to come here. One of my big issues. And I know very little about this, but what I know personally is from the Arab states, very wealthy people will come here so they can have their babies and their babies can have American passports. They never live here. They never work here. They just get uh, free passage to come and hang out in Disney World. But... uh, Uh, And they're not going to build up the 45 years or 35 quarters or whatever it is for Social Security, but neither are they going to pay taxes. Um, And uh, it's just uh, birth birth or tourism to me is is an anathema. And that's not the way uh, people I I think that are coming from the southern border, for instance, want to come here and Mm. all the other every other person you run into who was an immigrant who's done something great in this country. Um, so yeah, the world still wants to come here. You know, we, we got something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, Kuwait has a lot of oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I understand why Kuwait was not in your top two, perhaps. Bless it. Bless it. Is there any way to uh, segue smoothly or transition smoothly to our standard question? Uh, no, I was actually just about to to ask you if you wanted to tee that up. I, I think she knows the 
question, uh, but in case we have a new listener for this episode or, or two, uh, you're 25, Amelia. You're not sure what uh, the next big step is, but you have two choices in front of you. You can either join the military for four years. Uh, as Daniel likes to say, you may or may not deploy. Or you could perform stand-up comedy routines uh, once a week for six months, your own material in front of strangers. Definitely the military. Really? Absolutely. Huh. No hesitation. All right. I like it. That's, that's the Texas in you coming out. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'm not that funny. Um, I like to work hard. Um, I don't know if I did know when I was 25 how to serve, but I had been through my Montessori training then. And uh, you were a you were a weapon when you were 25 because you, you were through your Montessori training and, and you had also been taught to be very comfortable with guns and how to shoot, you know, by by your dad. So I would say I teacher. would say I would be more weaponized by my swimming career than by my um, acuity with firearms. Uh, um, my fitness all around threat. oh and i read (laughs) no i know in the military uh, a lot of that ego would have and that rebelliousness uh and that bossiness would have had to have been set aside but um Mm. i don't think i'd make it six months i'm really not that funny (laughs) (laughs) i might not make it six months in the military that said (laughs) Yeah, uh, you knew you knew that one coming in. That was cool. All right, well, um, let's let's go beekeeping real quickly. Okay, do you want yeah. you want you want to go through that? Okay, cool. sure. Well, um, I've uh, I've come to the. <laughs> I'm almost sixty, Paul. You're you're back to forty, and I'm moving real close to seventy. <laughs> So I've gotten to a place where I'm very comfortable. I'm out of intense parenting and intense globetrotting. Um, and um, I also am really just thinking that humanity is a mess. <laughs> and so instead of trying to rescue uh, animals in that ocean, dipping that teaspoon or people, um, I just thought I would just, Go back to trees and flowers and bees. Um, uh, And I tell all my beekeeper mentors that uh, I'm not in it for the honey. I'm in it for the bees. And uh, it's been a very humbling experience. I'm just starting my second summer. Um, And for instance, my idea about, oh, it's okay. I'll just let my hives swarm and then there will be more bees out in nature. Well, no, the honeybee is uh, not native to this <laughs> land. It is a uh, um, a farmed animal. Um, it does it does exist in the wild because Thomas Seeley uh, has studied bees in the Arnott Forest. But um, the idea that I might help repopulate New England with honeybees by letting my colony swarm in the spring <laughs> is just a ridiculous fantasy and waste of resources. So um, there isn't a time of teaching or a time I'm with the bees 
um, and with the people that work bees and with the community. And it's a huge community that goes from very, very um, amazing scientists like Randy Oliver to, you know, what I backyard beekeepers like myself who, you know, want to polish my hives and weird stuff like that. Um, it's, and all the, all the products and anyway. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, uh, I, my husband still does watch the checkbook. God love him. Um, it's not been the most expensive of my hobbies. Uh, <laughs> um, but, um, it's, it's one that is, uh, taking me to church in terms of learning and in terms of being with people. Um, and, um, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating world. I would like to tell the Daisy story. Um, ah, if, uh, not the Daisy story, it's the dandelion story. Okay. Yes. I I waved my wand once to make us all Montessorians. If I could wave it again, um, I would have people leave the dandelions wherever they are and ask our dear friend Monsanto to take uh, that image off of their bottles of Roundup because um, bees, a little bit like monarch butterflies, uh, have one population that has to overwinter. They have to live from November all the way through to March. So... um, Normally, a bee's life is 21 to 35 days, and they, they do all their five stages of work during that time, and they pass on to the great beyond, and bees are always being born. Well, in the winter in New England, you can't keep your brood up at 90 degrees. You're not going to keep making bees. I know that's different in Florida and Texas and places like that. But up here, we have one group that overwinters. And um, if they get to where... There, it's warm enough to fly. Um, the dandelion is the very first flower that comes out that has the nectar that they need to keep up enough energy to keep feeding the new brood. Because one of the last acts of the queen, if she's a third year queen, um, or one of her first acts in the spring is to lay eggs. And at that moment, once the eggs are laid, you can't, the cluster that has overwintered at about 50 degrees has to come up and be 90 degrees all the time. And that takes an awful lot of energy. And they have to feed those larvae, um, nectar and honey and bee bread and pollen and things like that. Um, so if they have the resources to take care of the babies, they need the energy themselves to keep it at 90 degrees. And the dandelion is the first flower on the scene and the perfect nectar for them. They're trees that come earlier, but the dandelion is the perfect nectar for them. So um, if everyone could uh, leave the dandelions alone uh, for the bees and other pollinators, there we have, what, 450 other species of native pollinators um, that everything that affects bees, uh, neonics, glycophate, glycophosphate, all of those uh, lovely... Uh, petroleum-based chemicals that we use in our environment, they don't just hurt bees, which have been captured by many environmental groups, but all pollinators. And um, we, are, we are worse off for it in our ecosystems if we hurt dandelions. 
You've convinced me, Amelia. I will never uh, pull another dandelion out of the ground. You can. You don't have to let it come to its seed head. You know, if you don't want to have, you know, you don't want it to take over your yard. Just wait for the blossoms to start to close before it comes back up into its beautiful um, satellite, mm-hmm. and and then and then clip it off. And and remember, um, dandelion root is edible, and dandelion leaves are a huge source of. Uh, of vitamin K and uh, micro minerals. There's not a part of the dandelion that isn't good. Mm. It's an amazing plant. All right. Well, Leave it alone for a while, then you can eat it. Pardon? So leave it alone. <laughs> Let the bees have their thing. Yes. Then it'll do the, the satellite thing, and then you can. Well, you, you know, it's beautiful, it. the, the seeds that fly away. Right, the big, the big yeah. orb. The orb, yes, yes. So you pet pluck and you can It's an blow. amazing aerodynamic. I mean, can you imagine God creating the dandelion? He's like, yeah, let's do it this way. It's just an amazing thing. You don't have to let those go. But yeah, then eat the leaves. Right on. I Get healthy. It. Cool. Well, Amelia, Amelia I, I had a great time chatting with you. I love the fact that uh, we get to record this and uh, future generations, maybe Daniel having kids someday, will uh, listen to this. I think Thank we- you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.